Well, if you're new to the valley or just new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible so that we can see what God has said to us there, rather hear what God has said to us there. Uh, We've made it through Galatians, Judges, and Ruth in the first 10 chapters of Mark since I've been here. And uh, I've decided that that since the Easter season has just happened and it's kind of taken us on a vacation from the book of Mark, that uh, we might, might be an opportune time for us to explore our first topical series together. So before we return to the book of Mark, we're going to, over the next four weeks or so, be discussing the church. We're going to deal primarily with three simple questions, and they'll bleed together throughout the messages, but what is a Christian, what is the church, and how does the church function? If you haven't picked it up already, there's a a book in the back by Dr. Mark Dever called What is a Healthy Church, and it's available to you for free, and it'll give you a sense of of where we're going in this series and as a church together. All that said, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today, and we're going to consider really the whole chapter, but we're going to consider the whole chapter in light of the conclusions that Paul draws in verses 19 through 22. So they're going to function kind of like a paradigm through which we're going to view the rest of the chapter. So what is the church? Well, the Bible refers to the church in two senses, local and universal, or visible and invisible, if you prefer. The universal or invisible church is all Christians everywhere for all time. And the local or visible church is a distinct community of Christians joined together in the task of making Jesus known. In seminary, I remembered this by thinking of it as the big C church, which was all Christians everywhere for all time. And then the little C church as my local community church, where there was a distinct set of Christians joined together in the task of making Jesus known. So big C, little C, church universal church local. A person's inclusion in the big C universal invisible church is typically evidenced by their participation in the visible or local church. So it's important that we note that there are not two separate churches here, but one church, visible and invisible. It's two different aspects of the one true church. So that our local expression here, we're the church, and so is the the church down the way that that follows Jesus and is committed to his word. We're all the same church, but at the same time, we're committed to one another in a way that's distinct from others in our community that might attend a different church. As we said, our inclusion in the universal church is typically expressed in our participation in the visible or local church. That's why the New Testament speaks primarily in terms of the local assembly. Ecclesiological statements, that's stuff that's said about the church in the New Testament that leads beyond the level of the local church or the local assembly is very rare in Paul's letters. He writes with a particular aim at the local church. It's because the local church is the vehicle of the Christian life. It says, Jonathan Lehman suggests the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and yours. That's pretty good, pretty good stuff. Listen to it again. He says, the local church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and yours. 
He continues, the local church enables the world to look upon the canvas of God's people and see an authentic painting of Christ's love and holiness rather than a forgery. The local church lays down a pathway with guardrails and resting stations for the long journey that is the Christian life. Simply simply put, the church is Christians living in community with God and with one another. We're going to have more to say on that in in coming weeks. But for now, we're going to come to our question for today. If the church is made up of Christians, we have to ask the question, Well, what then is a Christian? I think the question can be answered in many ways, but but the richest way to answer it that I know of is that a Christian is one who has God as Father and lives as a member of his household. A Christian is one who has God as Father and lives as a member of his household. The Christian is a member of God's family, and families, they live life together. See, Christianity, by its very nature, is lived out in the fellowship of the church. In the context of community, the church is the water in which Christian fishies swim. Christian without a church is as lost as that foolish fish in Finding Nemo. Thankfully, like the good father in Finding Nemo, our heavenly father never gives up on finding us and bringing us home. Anyhow, the the communal nature of Christianity is inescapable. The Bible teaches us about what a Christian is primarily through numerous corporate images and metaphors. And so in harmony with that pattern, we're going to see Paul employ three images today. He's going to use these three images to describe a Christian or Christians. They are citizens siblings and stones. Paul colors Christians as citizens, siblings, and stones. And so we're going to use these pictures as our outline this morning. Citizens, siblings, and stones. The main idea of the text that we're going to cover today is going to be that Jesus creates a new humanity by creating one new man. Jesus creates a new humanity by creating one new man. And he does this so that we might know God and so that we might together make God known. For it's in the church that God displays his glory unto the nations. Let's, uh, let's pray together before we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us from experiencing an Easter hangover. Lord, we pray that you would make us more than those that just live at church between Christmas and Easter. We ask that you would help us to celebrate the resurrection, not only every Sunday, but every day. Father, help us to delight in the fact that you took on flesh, became like us, and died for us. Lord, that's not something that should only be celebrated merely twice a year. Father, help us to be as excited this Sunday and every Sunday thereafter as we gather together as we are on Christmas and Easter. Help us to delight in the truth of your coming, of your work and your ministry while you are here, of your death and of your resurrection. Thank you for living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. And also for rising from the grave so that like you, we too might rise as part of the new creation. We thank you that you are making all things new. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So look, look with me at verse 19, and you're going to want to keep your Bible open so that you can see all of chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to run through bits and pieces of it, uh, not in any really intelligible order. So you're going to have to try to keep up, and I'm going to do my best to keep you with me this morning. We're starting at verse 19, where Paul writes this. He's drawing his conclusions based on what he's written before. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. See that what's occurred is a change in status. Both Jews and Gentiles move from death to life when they're united to Jesus by faith, but we must remember that the gospel went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Further, Jews had always had a special relationship with God, and they thought of themselves as the people of God. Whereas Gentiles, or those people that are not Jewish, well, they never thought of themselves as God's people. And in fact, before Christ... Jewish people ensure that the Gentile people knew that they didn't belong. We're God's people and you are not. Paul here is reminding us of the physical differences that used to separate the Jews and the Gentiles down in verses 11 and 13 are going to help us understand verse 19 a little bit. This is what he writes in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by the hands. You see, citizenship in Israel as part of the people of God was typically marked physically by the fact that Gentiles were not circumcised while Jews were circumcised. So Jews circumcised, Gentiles uncircumcised. We have the mark of the covenant of our father Abraham and you do not. And so circumcision served as kind of a a social security card, if you will, that showed that the Israelites belonged to the people of God, the people of Israel. They had their, their, uh, well not U.S., but Israelite passports. And you don't. We belong. We're part of the people of God and you are not. Our father was Abraham. Yours was not point here is is that before Jesus, Gentiles were clearly not counted as members of God's people. They were foreigners, not citizens. Think of my friend Keith who was here. Do you guys remember? Keith is a, a big, tall, white guy, and he served in China for three years. And one of the things that was evident to everyone when Keith walked down the street was that he was a foreigner. And he, he, he learned a little bit of Chinese while he was there, and so he, I can't remember the word for it. But it would be akin to when you go into Latin American countries and people say, gringo, gringo, right? They would say, they would say at him, hey, that's a tall white guy, foreigner, foreigner. He doesn't belong here. He's not a Chinese citizen. Look how tall and white he is. It was clear that he was an outsider, that he was a stranger living in a foreign land. Likewise, the Jews saw Gentiles clearly as outsiders, clearly not part of God's people. Not only that, not only were the Gentiles outsiders to the Jews, but typically they were considered as enemies. Jews and Gentiles, they didn't like each other. They didn't play well together. In fact, they were rivals. You can think Democrat versus Republican. Or Ohio State versus Michigan. Maybe Yankees, Red Sox. If you're, if you're not into the sports, uh, maybe think Jets and Sharks in the West Side Story. They don't get along. Paul's comment here also says, the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. 
And so he's saying this marker that you have marked yourself off with the people of God, he's hedging his bet for what he'll say later and in other places, it seems to indicate his belief in the truth that physical circumcision is ultimately of no value. He's making the point that the Jews made so much of circumcision, and it meant so much to so many people, but in the sight of God, ultimately it didn't matter because what matters is not the skin, but the heart. I mean, in Philippians, Paul will even dismiss circumcision as no better than mutilation. What he wants to do here, though, is highlight the real physical differences between Jew and Gentile. He wants to show that these things that used to divide you no longer divide you. Because in Christ, you are fellow citizens. He's reminding his readers of the bitter divisions from their past. The divisions that separated them not only from one another, but also from Christ. Look with me at verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now it's true that that some Jews were and still are separated from Christ. But they, they have a distinct advantage. They had a distinct advantage over the Jews. They had been told in the scriptures of the Messiah. The Gentiles were foreigners to these things. Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel, and they were strangers to these covenants. The Gentiles were alienated from the people of God. They were separated from the promises of God. More simply, the Jews had a knowledge of God, and some of them were saved by faith in His promises, while the Gentiles were not privy to any of that information. They weren't privy to that same knowledge. If a person is without God, they are ultimately without hope. They remain as foreigners outside of the kingdom of God. Paul is reminding his readers of their former status. He's reminding them of what he wrote back in verse 1 of this same chapter. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. He's saying, remember you were dead. Remember your former status apart from Christ. You were hopeless, without hope and without God. You had no knowledge of the promises of God. And to the Jews, if you did have knowledge of those promises, many of you were only physically circumcised, not spiritually so. You still didn't know Jesus. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's calling his readers to remember. He's saying, remember your helpless state. Do not forget what you have been saved from. Do not forget that you were at war with God and with others. Do not forget you were helpless. In my quiet time this week, I came across a few verses in Hosea that I think relate to to why Paul is exhorting his readers to remember. In Hosea chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, this is what the prophet writes. But I am the Lord your God, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when you had grazed, you became full, and were filled, and your hearts were lifted up. Therefore you forgot me. 
These verses recount the fact that as God delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them through the wilderness, they were continually dependent upon Him for their daily needs. If God did not provide food or drink, they were out of luck. And so they understood praying, give us this day our daily bread, a little bit better than we do. But a really, a really funny thing happened. Once Israel was settled down and was granted prosperity, they became full of, flu- full of food, full of themselves, and forgetful of God. We are like this. Very devoted to God when we need something, but once those needs are met, we, we quickly become self-satisfied, full of ourselves and full of all the stuff that we have. We become forgetful of God. I actually think that this is one of the reasons many of us find that we have more than we need. The evil one knows our abundance will cause us to become apathetic in our prayer life, undevoted to our study of Scripture, and forgetful of our Savior. Are you forgetful of God? This this reminds me, though, too, also of how every once in a while, and maybe you get these calls too, my my television provider will will call me on the phone and they'll say, hey, look, we've got a great deal for you. We want to give you HBO and Cinemax and a bunch of other really awesome pay-for channels absolutely free for three months. What do you say? Now, in the past, I had the wool over my eyes a little bit, and I would say, of course, that sounds great. Free, free extra channels, I, I'm in. But since then, I've learned to decline because what happens to me, and maybe it's happened to you too, is you sit back, you enjoy the extra channels, you get used to them for three months, and then you forget to cancel. And that, that month four bill shows up. And all of a sudden, you see the real cost of the channels that you've been watching. I think this is exactly what happens to us spiritually. We get comfortable We enjoy the riches that we have in Christ. We enjoy the lavish love and blessing of God. And in the midst of our comfort, in the midst of our fullness, we forget what those things cost. We forget the value of them. Take them for granted. Simply because we did nothing to bring ourselves into right relationship with God, we forget that it took God taking on flesh and dying in our place to save us from the wrath that we deserve. Paul is reminding his readers here to remember the gospel because they're prone to forget it. We too easily forget the gospel and fall back into sinful patterns, sinful rivalry, sinful divisions. He's saying don't forget that you were at war with God and others until, and if you look down in verse 4, it says you were at war with others until God being rich in mercy Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together alive with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved and raised up with him, and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing is the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is saying, don't forget you are hopeless. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
by the grace of God, Christian, you have been transformed from outsider to insider, from stranger to friend, from foreigner to fellow citizen. And your inclusion in God's kingdom is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His Word. That's why in verse 20, Paul continues, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. John Stott comments on this verse, it seems clear that what constitutes the church's foundation is not the person or office, that's the person or office of the apostles and prophets, but their instruction. The emphasis here should not surprise us. The church stands or falls according to its faithfulness to God's Word. I came across an article in the New York Times recently in which the uh, writer and editor James E. Walsh was remembered. He's most famous for creating and condensing a version of the Bible in 1982 for, for what was widely circulated then, Reader's Digest. His abridged version is about 500,000 words, while the Bible itself is around 850,000 words. As you can imagine, there was a little bit of a controversy about his reduction of Scripture by about 40% and the reduction of Jesus' words by about 10%. And and I think for good reason there was controversy here. I do want to caveat, while, while various paraphrases and storytelling versions of the Bible are wonderful tools, They cannot replace the whole counsel of the Word of God. Dr. Moeller utilized this story as a parable from which we would do well to learn. He said this, By the time Mr. Walsh's version of the Bible was published, it didn't have much of an impact. And therein lies the parable. Because in reality, the danger to any Christian is that we'll try to create our own condensed form of the Bible and thus become ineffective our own reader's digest version of the bible will prove impotent this is the danger theologians speak of of having a canon within a canon that is a set of scripture within the bible we recognize to be the word of god for us while we disregard the rest see if we pick and choose portions of the bible that we would like to believe and disregard the parts that challenge our thinking then We'll be left with a God that bows to cultural whimsy and our own passions. If we truly set ourselves up as the authority over God's Word, determining that which is authoritative and that which is not, we effectively have set ourselves up as our own gods who will ultimately be obedient to our own Word rather than the Word of God. This is it's rebellion incognito. It's the person that says, yeah, I'm a Christian in one breath, And then the next says, I refuse to obey his word. Or maybe, I don't think Jesus would agree with Romans, and so I don't have to listen to or submit to it. I can live whichever way I want. I like what Jesus has to say about love your neighbor, but I don't like what he has to say about marriage and family. I like what he has to say about loving all people, but I don't like what he has to say about I have to hate my family in order to follow him. You can't have just the parts you like and the parts you don't like. Your very salvation is built upon the work of Christ and the Word of Christ. 
To create your own Reader's Digest version of the Bible is to move Christian structures from the firm foundation of God's Word and to place them on the sandy shores of man's wisdom. The building will fall. Denial of God's Word is the height of folly and is a surefire way to stifle growth in Christ's likeness. It will bring into question your very salvation. Abandoning God's Word increases worldliness and fans the flames of sin. Beware of those that question God's Word. To ignore Scripture is to ignore the voice of God. The Bible says that those who do not abide in the Word of God do not have life. God says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Jesus says his sheep know his voice and they listen to it. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Peter tells us that the Bible is more sure. It's a more sure way of knowing God than our own eyewitness testimony. It's better than our experience. It's better than our feelings. The Bible you have in front of you is the best way for you to know what God is like. It's the best way for you to know what He requires of you in worship. What He demands of your life. To rightly worship God and grow in Christ's likeness, we need all of His Word, not just the parts we pick and choose. His Word shows us what our citizenship looks like. Our citizenship and our salvation is built on Jesus and His Word, and it's by hearing the good news of the Gospel and believing it by grace through faith that our status is changed. Friends, abide in His Word. Put time on your calendar to meet with God and to hear from Him. A Christian is a fellow citizen of the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of God. But more, more than that. Because not only have we been made citizens, but we've been made citizens by virtue of being made siblings. We've been adopted into God's family and are members of His household. Back in verse 19. You are fellow citizens with the saints and more than that, even members of God's own household. Christians are fellow citizens of the kingdom and fellow siblings of the king and of one another. I mean, these glorious truths are again built on God's promise which is fulfilled in His Son and revealed to us in His Word. But still, we might ask the question, how has God made his enemies his children? How has God made us brothers and sisters? And we would do well to look back at the first part of Ephesians 2, back there in verse 4. Remember, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We've been made alive together with Christ. Because we've been united to Him by faith and been made new by Him. Back in verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus makes us whole by tearing us apart from our sin and solitude and tethering us to one another in himself. He tears down the walls between us, others, and himself. He ends rivalries. You see, in the church, Democrats and Republicans love one another. They do life together because their primary identity is not in politics, but is in Christ. In the church, Ohio State fans and Michigan fans are on the same team. In the church, even the bad blood between the Jets and the Sharks can be purified by the blood of Christ. Jesus being peace for Jew and Gentile should amaze us. The hostility that existed between the Jew and Gentile, it's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, especially considering the fact that the majority of the church initially would have been made up of Jews. It would have been easy for them to feel superior to the Gentiles. I mean, were they not God's chosen people? I mean, would it not have been natural for them to carry over their old prejudices into the church? We are God's chosen. And they did. I mean, remember when we were going through Galatians in chapter 2, even Peter and Barnabas were led away by this type of prejudice. They stopped eating with the Gentiles. They're making a distinction between Jew and Gentile there. Remember, Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face to correct this behavior. He wanted to preserve unity. You're not superior, he said. You need grace just as much as the Gentiles. Eat together. There are no divisions in the body of Christ. I think for those of us that have been Christians a long time, it's really easy to become like Peter and Barnabas or other Jews. We easily forget how much we need grace. And we begin to think that we've contributed something to our own salvation or that somehow we're superior to others because we've been Christians longer. I know that there certainly have been times in my life when I've mistreated others because I acted as if they were second class because they, they weren't as mature as I was. Have you done this? Or, or maybe for you, you more easily relate to the Gentiles and you feel like a second class citizen. Think of how easy it would have been for them to think this way, right? They're surrounded by Jews. Jewish ideas, a Jewish savior, Jewish scriptures, Jewish apostles, Jewish everything. I fear that some of you feel the same way in the church as you do when you fly. You walk past all those lucky people in first class to sit yourself between two strangers in coach. It's not a class system in the church. Don't feel this way, brothers and sisters. In the church, there are no classes. There's only in Christ or out of Christ. The dividing line of humanity is not color of skin or race or cultural background but your relationship to Jesus and the cross. There is only crucified with Christ and raised or dead in sin. That's the dividing line of humanity. There is in Christ or out of Christ. Jesus unites his people by being their peace and by, verse 15, abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you 
who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Dr. Morita comments on this. These commandments as regulations put up a huge wall between Jew and Gentile. Jesus set aside all of this by dying on the cross. At the cross, Jesus fulfilled all the shadows and types of the ceremonial system of the law. Jesus put to death the law as a means of salvation through his death. Jesus has erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Stott summarizes, Jesus abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation of the moral law. Both were divisive. Both were put aside by the cross. Jesus is creating one new humanity in Christ, and in Christ alone this new man exists. In Christ, a new corporate communal entity exists, which is the church. Notice too here that Gentiles are not simply transformed into Jews, and Jews are not simply transformed into Gentiles, but both are made Christians. Chrysostom, who was called Golden Mouth, he's a preacher from way back when, he must have been pretty good for a nickname like that, but old Golden Mouth illustrated this by thinking of two statues, one silver and the other made of lead. And then when they were melted down in the forge, came out as one statue made of gold. Jesus kills hostility by being killed for the hostile and uniting them to himself as part of the new creation. You see, Jesus creates a new humanity by creating one new man. He does this so we might know God and so that we might together make God known. Jesus levels the sinful prejudices created by humanity. He does away with racism. He does away with classes. Jesus raises the walls of hostility so that he might raise up not a Jewish people, not a white people, not a Gentile people, not a Latino people, not a black people, not an Asian people, not an Indian people, but a new people, kingdom people. Dr. Meridia calls these new kingdom people red people. He writes, let us be part of a red church, a group of people from every tribe and tongue that has been redeemed by the torn apart Christ who spilled his red blood that we may be reconciled to God and to one another. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are kingdom people. You are red people. Perhaps an illustration will help you get your mind around this a little more. And it'll sound familiar if you've read Dr. Dever's book. This is what he says. Perhaps meditating on the analogy of a household will help us see that being reconciled to God also means being reconciled to his people. If you're an orphan, you don't adopt parents. They adopt you. If your adoptive parents are named Smith, you now attend Smith family dinners with the parents and all the children. You share your bedroom at night with Smith siblings. When the teacher at school calls out attendance and says, Smith, you raise your hand like your older brother did before you and your younger sister will after you. And you do this not because you decided to play the role of Smith, but because someone went to the orphanage and said, you will be a Smith. 
on that day, you became the child of someone and the sibling of others. Only your name is not Smith. It is Christian, named after the one through whom you were adopted, Christ. Now you're part of the whole family of God. Packer asks these questions and answers them. Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? The glorious truth of adoption enables us to answer with certainty, I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is a day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night as you wait in line. Anytime when your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows that it is all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian's secret of a happy life. More. It's the Christian's secret of the Christian life. A God-honoring life. These are the aspects of the situation that really matter. Let this secret become fully yours and fully mine. Christians are those that have been made citizens of God's kingdom through their adoption as sons and daughters into the family of the king. But not only are we fellow citizens and fellow siblings, we are also joined stones. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter puts it this way, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as spiritual house. Jesus is the master craftsman who holds together those who have been joined by Him together as one growing holy temple. God makes us fellow citizens by adopting and making us fellow siblings so that we might as fellow stones display His glory to one another and to the nations. God shows His glory in the church because only Christians have Jesus as their peace. Only Christians have the wholeness of knowing God. I mean, the Greeks in the past and us in the West today tend to see peace as a negative. Peace means the absence of war. But Paul and most other New Testament writers were Hebrews. And for them, peace was shalom. This is a word that in a standard Hebrew lexicon gives the meanings of completeness, soundness, well-being, wholeness. Where Greeks saw peace as the absence of warfare and strife, the Hebrews did not see it as the absence of anything. In fact, they saw it as the presence of something, something wonderful. It conveyed to the the notions of completeness, soundness, health, and the well-rounded life. It pointed to the blessings of God poured out on His people. To say then that Christ is our peace does not mean simply that Christ has delivered us from warfare and strife. It means that He has made us whole. Only Jesus can make you whole. Non-Christian, only Jesus will give you peace, will give you wholeness, will give you soundness of life. Only Jesus can make you truly healthy. Will you follow Him? Do you know Him? 
in closing, let us consider a few implications of this text that have been pointed out by Dr. Morita. First, it's clear that Christ wants to create a people, not merely isolated individuals who believe in him. This passage confronts Western individualism. To be separate from the church is to say, I want to be a stone apart from the building, or a son and daughter separated from my family, or a refugee away from my country. The New Testament positions the church as our fundamental identity. To be a Christian is to be united to the church. How do you identify yourself? Second, if we are apart from community, we are not following the New Testament pattern. We're not helping ourselves. It's not good to be apart from the oversight of shepherds or apart from the accountability and support of brothers and sisters. The New Testament assumes that every Christian is part of a local church. This is how God intends for us to live out our faith and love one another in community. It is an incredible gift of God's grace to have a family of faith. It's a gift of grace to gather corporately and stir one another up to faith and good works. It's a gift of grace to love one another as Christ has loved us. It's a gift of grace to carry one another's burdens. It's a gift of grace to give financially to further the gospel. It is a gift of grace to encourage one another and to be encouraged by one another. Why would we refuse this grace? The New Testament assumes that we would be a part of the church, that we would be growing up in Christ. We cannot live the Christian life apart from the church. To be apart from the church is to be in sin. Do you belong to a church? Christians are to be a preview of heaven on earth. Those that follow Jesus are citizens in God's kingdom, siblings in God's household, and stones in God's temple. These realities are lived out in the local church. The church is a new humanity created by Jesus to make known God and to bring God glory. Christian, bring God glory. Make God known. Be the church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would strip away our selfishness, that you would help us to submit to your scripture and to your fatherhood. Pray that you would help us to step outside of our comforts and outside of ourselves and link arms with our siblings, with our fellow living stones, that we might, by doing life together, exemplify the gospel that our fellowship with one another might be a foretaste of heaven, that the lost and dying world around us might look upon your fellowship here and know that we are disciples of Christ by the way that we love one another, that they might see the wholeness and the peace that you've brought to us and desire it, that they might be led to repentance and desire you. Lord, bring yourself glory in our lives. Lead us unto repentance once more. Turn us away from our own silly and sinful desires towards your desires. Make our heartbeat your heartbeat. Help us to be like you, to love you, and to love one another as you have loved us.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.